Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This is Craig Colquitt, former punter for the University of Tennessee Volunteers and the Pittsburgh Steelers. And you are listening to Total Sports Recall Podcast, a part of Sports History Network. Now, here is your host, Harv Aronson. You are listening to the Total Sports Recall Podcast, where you get sports from a different angle with a Pittsburgh twist. Welcome to Total Sports Recall. This is your host, Harv Aarons, and I like to call myself a sports historian. And so today I welcome another member of the Sports History Network who is also a sports historian. My guest also has a podcast called Historically Speaking Sports, and he is Dana Auguster. His show is in its fourth season, Historically Speaking Sports covers a wide range of topics, highlighting the greatest moments in sports history from the major sports that make up today's sports headlines. As for Dana, he grew up in New Iberia, Louisiana, which is located on the state's Gulf Coast. In 1998, Dana graduated from Southern University, earning a degree in broadcast journalism. For 15 years, Dana worked in sports radio and for newspapers, a role as sports editor for the Daily Review in Morgan City, Louisiana. In 2012, Dana moved to his current home in Snellville, Georgia, outside of Atlanta, with his wife, Nicole, and son, Lyndon. In Snellville, Dana established a new facility maintenance company with his brother-in-law. Dana's podcast, Historically Speaking Sports, began as a blog, but in 2021, he turned it into a podcast. When it comes to sports, Dana has been a lifelong fan of the Los Angeles Chargers, but also cheers for the Boston Celtics in the NBA and the Braves in Major League Baseball. As for his overall opinion of sports, Dana will tell you he loves all sports and the drama that goes with it, especially as to how how it comes as a surprise to the athlete and to the fans watching. Welcome to Total Sports Recall, Dana. And what I'm going to ask you first is, having grown up in Louisiana, why the Chargers and not the Saints? Well, it it has a lot to do with time. Um, At that time, the Chargers was – well, let me start off like this. It started off as a household thing because my dad is a crazy Raiders fan. And so I needed a team that's a rival of his, you know, and I chose the Chargers because this is the early 1980s. And this is the height of Air Coriel. And during the height of the Air Coriel thing, and then the, 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 the Raiders were really good. They were still in Oakland at the time. And I needed a team to go against his. And the Chargers was just a great team to have that. And plus, 
I've always been a fan of offensive football. And when you talk about the Air Coriel era Chargers, you think of high scoring, you think of Fouts and Winslow and Joyner and those guys. And I just became, just was immediately drawn to them. You know, I'm of the opinion, and I say this often when I talk to people and they ask me that very same thing. And I tell them that when it comes to you, you don't fall in love with it. It's almost like, the team, you, you're drawn to the team rather than you, you know, it's like you, you're drawn to them. That's how it was with me, you know. And I was just immediately drawn to the Chargers with the lightning bolts and the, and, and the just outstanding offense and the high scoring. And I just gravitated to them. And from that point on, I've just been a Chargers fan. Of course, I stuck out, you know. But the Saints at the time weren't really that good. That was the era of the Aints when everybody went to the Superdome <laughs> wearing bags on their heads. Uh-huh. And that was the thing, and that was, and I was like, I don't know if I'm really because they had Archie Manning, and he's still like a big time, huge figure in New Orleans, you know. And I didn't, I never really was drawn to them, but I was drawn to the Chargers, not because of the winning, but because of their style. And every team has a style. You're a Steelers fan. And the Steelers are known for defense and smash mouth football. Me, I like finesse. I like high scoring. I like passing. I, I love all that, and that's what the Chargers represent. And I just hope that sometime before I pass on, I can see them win a Super Bowl. But that's another story for another day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they, they've they been there. It just didn't, uh, didn't make it uh, the rest of the way. So uh, we Steeler fans are spoiled. You know, we've, we've got six of them. Uh, and, and luckily for us, uh, the Chiefs won the other night. So it keeps uh, San Francisco from tying us in New England with six. So how did you get drawn to the Celtics and the Braves? Well, the, <clears throat> well, the Braves, it was easy because – you know, watching baseball, you know, in, in Louisiana, there is no baseball team. And, of course, you had uh, TBS at the time, the Superstation, broadcasting Braves games across the country. And I became – and I started rooting for the Braves um, at a very early age. I mean, watching Dale Murphy, Bob Horner, uh, you know, those guys, um, Gene Garber in the early 80s. And then, of course, the success they had in the 90s. You know, with you know, with Smoke Glavin, you know, and and it was just such of a great team, and still, and plus, I live here in Atlanta, so it's a natural thing, you know. But my fandom for the Braves actually goes back to the early '80s when they were terrible, you know. And I still contend with anybody. The '91 Braves, the '91 World Series, Braves Twins is still the greatest World Series ever, even though they lost. But that was just an awesome series. And Game 7, even though it was one nothing, but it was the greatest. It was so exciting with it being a pitcher's duel, and it was, and it went into extra innings, tied at nothing, nothing. And still, I think that's the greatest World Series ever, and I would debate anybody to tell me anything different. Celtics, again, time and place. The Celtics' early 80s, which is when I became a, when I became a big-time sports fan, um, it was Bird, McHale, Parrish, you know, and, and just that team there. And my neighbor, who's still my best friend, and we talked like every other day, he and I 
he's a Laker fan. I'm a Celtic fan, and that's just a natural rivalry thing. And then we, we were like that. But you know, he 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 hates the Celtics, my friend, but he respects them. And I'm the same way with the Lakers. I hate the Lakers, but I respect them. Yeah, two of the best teams ever, actually. Um, and it's interesting because one of my past guests was B.B. Flannery, who was a high school basketball playing stud in Pittsburgh. I uh, went on to play uh-huh. at Duquesne University um, and got a tryout with the, with the Celtics. And it was about the time, actually, I think it was Larry Bird's rookie season. And okay. uh, Cedric Maxwell was on the team. A uh, um, bunch of other guys. Uh, Robert McHale, uh, I think, was on the team. Um, uh, Parrish, I mean, Robert Parrish. Um, and so he said – he looked around. He didn't make the team, but he made the final to the final cuts. But he said there was so much talent on that Celtics team. He didn't stand a chance. Um, but he mm-hmm. was proud to have have given that opportunity with, with all these different stars on the team. But you know, speaking of the Braves, I'll never forget when Sid Bream, who was a former Pittsburgh Pirate, broke the Bucks fans' hearts in 1992, scoring the winning run and knocking the Pirates out of the playoffs in the National League Championship Series. Do you recall that moment? I was in college at the time, and this is the, one of the funniest sports stories for a fan. Um, me and my buddy, it was 1992, it was 92, wasn't it? It yeah. was 92, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, was, I was in a dorm with my friends, and we were playing video games, right? We, had, we were playing video games on this one TV, and there's another TV off to the side with the game on. Right, so I'm playing, and every now and then I'll look off to the side, see what was going on, and then the yeah. bottom of the knife comes along, mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, guy, you can just take it. I'm gonna watch the game, right? Yeah. And I'm sitting there watching it, watching it, and Bream, you know, Bream is on second. It's all set mm-hmm. up. Francisco Cabrera hits the single. He rounds second, going to home, and when he rounds third, going home, I'm thinking to myself, this dude is slow. What are you doing? <laughs> okay. Yeah. And the throw from Bonds, I think it was Bonds who threw it in. Yeah. And it was just off to just off target, just slightly. If it was a little bit more on target, he was dead. They would have yeah. got him dead to rights. But it was just off just a little bit and he managed mm-hmm. to get in under the tag. You yeah. know, and I just went absolutely nuts. I mean, there mm-hmm. were some guys. I ran out to the hallway yelling and screaming. There were some guys down the hallway in <laughs> my dorm that was from Atlanta, okay, yeah. that were watching the game, okay? And we started high-fiving each other and everything else. And that was, like, really cool. But that happened. I was uh, I was in college at the time when that mm-hmm. happened. And that was, pretty, that was, like, one of the coolest moments ever, you know? And even though we, got, we lost that series to Toronto – which I have no idea how that even happened. I still curse, you know, Pat Borders and uh, Paul Molitor for that. But anyway, yeah, yeah. you know, but Paul Molitor had an awesome series as well as MVP Pat Borders. So it, it was it was pretty cool. Well, last week I interviewed Jim Trudnich, who's the uh, baseball historian for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and we were talking about this game with Sid Bream. Uh, and he says they're still they still have a relationship with Sid Bream. And he said every time he tries to ask him to do something, Sid Bream feels bad because what he did to the Pirates. And uh, Doug Drabeck was actually the starting pitcher in that game. And I always said that had they left him in the game, the Pirates might have won because he was doing really well. He was cruising and he gave up a couple of hits. And uh, Jim Leland, I think, was the manager, pulled him. And, yeah, he was. Uh, you know, 
the rest of it was downhill from there. But the funny story I always tell about this is that I was in New York at the time and I had a friend that was a huge Mets or Yankees fan. And he knew I was a diehard Pirates fan. And the moment, and I swear, Dana, the moment that Bream crossed that plate, my phone rang and I knew exactly who it was. And I pick up the phone and this friend of mine was just laughing, laughing hysterically, you know, because we lost. Uh, and so I was just, of course, cursing at him, saying, hey, you... <laughs> funny <laughs> so uh in this yeah but yeah this I mean, episode, yeah, Dana, back, we're gonna that, think... yeah go ahead no what I, was, what I was gonna say was i mean you think back to that that time and place in baseball where, where it kind of like it was and uh, i may be just being like the old man on the lawn type of thing but it just seemed baseball was better back then than it is now. Oh, yeah. You know, it you know, it just it just seems like it is. Um mm-hmm. because I remember that game because I was sitting there watching it and in the beginning and I felt like it was over. Dre Beck was cruising as you said, and anything in you know, in the beginning of the game, the Braves really couldn't do anything, you know, offensively mm-hmm. until the later innings. You know, and then Breen comes up, and, then, and I mean, Breen comes up, gets on, and then Francisco Cabrera comes up, and he does his thing, and the rest of they say is history. Yeah, and the interesting thing is, after that series, the Pirates did not make the playoffs again until 2013. So they went 20 years, and most of those were losing seasons. So it was a long way before they got back to the playoffs, and then they went three straight, and now they're back into another rut. So we'll see if they ever get hmm. back there, but uh, we'll have to see. Um, so I think one quick so, thing before we move on. Yeah. One quick thing before we move on, and I just want to say, as you being a Pirates fan, my yeah. first, one of my very first sports heroes was Willie Stargell. Oh my gosh! And and he was one of my first sports heroes, and I remember the '79 series against Baltimore. That's where, like the first World Series I actually remember watching, and it was and the home run in the seventh inning. A home run in the seventh game, I should say, to, to pretty much to clinch it, you know, was like, I want to say that might have been the first home run I ever saw in real time. Wow. And and I remember that, and I remember, and, and, and for my money, the Pirates uniforms from that time mm-hmm. is probably the greatest baseball uniforms ever, you yeah, know. 79. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, because I had one of their hats. They got lost in through time or whatever. But I had mm-hmm. one of those hats that they used to wear with the stars on it and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, man, that is so cool. I, I would wear it every now and then. And I would get, like, looks from people. Like, where did you get that hat from? And stuff like that. So, but that's one of my hobbies. It's like, you know, old school, you know, mm-hmm. sport. Like, I love old school uniforms and stuff. I talk about it from time to time on my podcast. So, you know, I've always thought that the 79 Pirates and the 72 Oakland A's uniforms are two of the best ever. Yeah. Well, several notes from some of the things you said. First of all, Willie Stargell is a Southern guy. Uh, I believe he was either born in Louisiana mm-hmm. or Mississippi. I'm, I can't quite recall, but I know he's from I South. think he was born in Mississippi. I think he was born in Mississippi. I'm not sure yeah. if he was born – I know he was born in the South. I'm not exactly sure where. Yeah, and so secondly, when you talk about the old school, um, I'm a little older than you, but I always say that the 70s and 80s were the two best decades for sports, and not just being from Pittsburgh, but across the board. Sports back in the 70s and 80s were the best, absolutely the greatest time to grow up watching sports. Um, And so uh, 
the other thing I was going to mention with the uniforms is Willie Stargell and the stars on the hat. Um, Jim Tridden and John were talking about that last week, and somebody else asked me about it, how the stars got on the hat. And so what happened was that Willie Stargell being the captain, every time somebody made a good play or had a good game, he would give them the star, and they put that on their help, on their hat. And that's how the stars came about. But their uniforms, they were interchangeable. So they could wear a black yeah. top and, and yellow bottoms or yellow top and black bottoms. They mixed them all up. So, And I made another comment when we were talking baseball recently about the Chicago White Sox that wore shorts one season. I don't know if you remember that or not. Yeah, but, yeah I do remember <laughs> that. The dumbest thing I've ever seen, but it's kind of funny at the same way. So go ahead, Dana. Yeah, I was about to say that, you know, the um, – I had went to a White Sox game. This was oh, a while back. And they had like the White Sox Museum, okay, team museum. So I was like, I got to go. So I went in there, checked it out, and they had like a – they showed the uniforms from – that was 76, I want to say, 1976. Uh-huh. No, yeah. the, mm-hmm. and, and then they showed it with the shark. No, the jerseys were cool. The jerseys were cool. I just didn't like the, mm-hmm. the butterfly collar on it, you know, but the jerseys yeah, yeah. were cool. And, you know, but, um, I mean, it was just like, that was probably the worst uniform ever. Mm-hmm. Now, when they went to the uniforms from the 80s, when they had the, the big blue stripe across the front had socks written in it, now, that was cool. That was pretty yeah. cool, you know. But the, 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 the ones before with the shorts, thanks to Bill Vec, um, mm-hmm. no. Uh, it just didn't work, you know. It looked like they looked like a looked like a softball team, you know. <laughs> well, well, the San Diego Padres old brown uniforms would rival those ugly ones in the Houston Astros. I mean, those were those were pretty bad. Uh, but yeah, go ahead, Dana. Are you gonna say something? Yeah, I was gonna say that you know he. I mean, I grew up watching the Astros when they had those uniforms, but it, 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 it's one of those things that they were so ugly. That yeah. they, it was it was it was cute almost, and mm-hmm. it just brings back a lot of memories because you know I remember when they you know when they had them they had of course they had Nolan Ryan they had Jose Cruz, um, Dicky Thon, mm-hmm. um, they had a bunch of great great players you know yeah. for the and they just could not get past the Phillies in the playoffs during mm-hmm. that time you know because the Phillies I mean they were just a powerhouse you know and they just could get past the Phillies. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather hated them. My grandfather was a Dodgers fan, and my grandfather just despised them. <laughs> <laughs> well, if not for anything else, it was very nostalgic. That'd be a good topic for a podcast, actually. Uh, jerseys, all-time jerseys from different yeah. teams. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Might have to do that one. Uh, well, this episode, Dana, we were go- we are going to focus on the most famous football rivalries in college and professional football. And growing up in Pittsburgh, I lived through a bitter rivalry between the University of Pittsburgh and Penn State University. Those were classic games when I was growing up, a very heated rivalry. In fact, one of my previous guests was a high school classmate of mine, an outstanding linebacker who played at Pitt and later for the Steelers, Steve Fidel, who told me about how hostile that rivalry was. Pitt also had a long ongoing rivalry with West Virginia University that became known as the Backyard Brawl. In this rivalry, Pitt leads the series with 62 victories while losing 41. Rivalry includes three ties, so they know – what local rivalries can you recall from growing up in Louisiana? Well, let me give you one. Okay. Everybody think when you think of college football in Louisiana, of course you're going to think of LSU. But if you really put, if you really sit and think about it, the main 
LSU doesn't really have a quote-unquote main rival anymore. It used to be Tulane, but Tulane didn't kind of you – know, they've had a resurgence, but only in Conference USA. When they were in the SEC, it was – when they were in the SEC, it was long before my time. You know, they had left the SEC in like in the in the sixties, so that really wasn't like a major rivalry. You know, LSU established one with Arkansas for the Battle of the Boot Trophy, but that doesn't really have the same thing. You know, you could say they have one with Ole Miss, but their Ole Miss's main rival is Mississippi State, so you really can't go with that. But when it comes to college football, the best rivalry in the state of Louisiana, I feel, was a, was a rivalry that I witnessed firsthand as a fan since I was eight years old. And I had gone to every every one of these rivalry games up until I moved to Atlanta, and that's the Bayou Classic between Southern and Grambling. And wow. it's the most interesting and the most um, – it's one of those rivalries that is – that is the best way to describe it hard is like this. And it's the absolute truth. You can go to church on every Sunday morning and the, and you can see different people and what's not. But when you go to church the week before the Bayou Classic, you could tell who, which ones are Gremlin fans and which ones are Southern fans because it's sitting on opposite sides of the church. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> because it's, is is that is just that way, um, That's crazy. and it's not just and that and it it was like that for you know as long as I could remember, but it's a rivalry that's unique in the fact that not only is a rivalry between the two football teams, it's a rivalry between the bands, mm. and it's like when the Bayou Classic happens, when halftime comes more people come and sit down and watch the halftime show than they are watching the game. And people yeah. watching the game is a lot of people. They've been holding it in the, in the Superdome since 1975 when it was first built. And that's one of the marquee events in New Orleans for the whole year. There's Mardi Gras, there's the Essence Fest, and there's the Bayou Classic. And, and, you, th- and you, you look at the game itself and the players that have played in this game and the coaches that have coached in this game, it's is basically like an NFL's who's who, you know. Um, first of all, you, first of all, you have to start when you talk about the Bayou Classic. It begins and ends in the discussion with Eddie Robinson. Um, Eddie Robinson, I was one of the biggest regrets of my life was I had a football that was signed by Buck Buchanan and Eddie Robinson. No kidding. And I lost that ball, and I'm I am like so oh, sick man. about it, you know. Yeah. And um, but when you talk about that rivalry, I mean, of course, you got the jokes and everything that goes around in the ribbing of the teams and everything, and you know, and all of that. But yeah. one subject about that rivalry that was kind of like off limits about talking negative about was Eddie Robinson. Eddie Robinson actually was born and raised in Baton Rouge, which is where Southern is located, but ended up taking the job at Grambling and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, but, yeah, I mean, but when you talk about rivalries in the state of Louisiana, that's like the top one, you know. We talk about major rivalries. It's an in-state rivalry, obviously, but it's one of those rivalries that you see, if you see and hear people talk about and then if you go there and actually watch the game itself, you come away from it thinking, 
that may be the coolest rivalry in all of college football because it's not only the football game itself, but it's also the band and the halftime show, which is which is really interesting. And the bands are trying to outdo each other as far as performance and sound and everything else. And if you win the game and the battle of the bands, then that's a great year. It doesn't matter if that's the only football game you win all year, you know, because while I was there, Southern wasn't really all that good until the end where we won a couple of black college national championships. But, you know, but when you talk about the Bayou Classic, if you come away with that, winning the game and winning the Battle of the Bands, that's a great year. Whether you've won nine games or two games, it's a great season. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you, when I was growing up in the 70s, um, I used to follow some scores from, from Grambling, and they were a powerhouse back then. And, and I was going to mention Eddie Robinson until you mentioned but yeah. Um, they were such a great football team. But and you mentioned the marching bands. When I was in college, we used to look forward to the halftime show just to watch our marching band. They were that good. So I know I understand where you're coming from with the marching bands. And in fact, I've said these stupid Super Bowl halftime shows they have now, they should go back old school and have some of these great marching bands come in and perform at halftime. That's what football is all about, not these ridiculous yeah. shows they put on at halftime. I, I refuse to watch a halftime show because it's so pathetic. But, you know, when I went to I went to Super Bowl 43 and Bruce Springsteen was a halftime show. And I'm not a big Bruce Springsteen Springsteen fan, but I told my friend I went to the game with. I said at halftime, I said, I'm going out to hang out at the mezzanine. I'm not even interested in watching this. So I, <laughs> I hear you when you talk about the marching bands. Absolutely. You know, those are for us old schoolers. They we we appreciate and understand what it was all about. But let's get to the major college rivalries that still exist today. Now, as I live in Florida now, down here we have Florida versus Florida State. The Seminoles at Florida State have had, had an incredibly good year this past season going undefeated. And a lot of most of those guys were angry that they were left out of the national playoff. But then they look kind of stupid after losing in the Orange Bowl to, to Georgia, yeah. 63 to 3. Um, and then we have the world's biggest cocktail party here in Jacksonville every year. Florida against Georgia over the course of history. Georgia leads a series of 55 wins, losing 44 to the Gators and Florida twice. Uh, so what are some of the rivalries stick out to you that still exist today? Well, there's another one. And thanks to my grandfather, he introduced me this to this rivalry. And there was something very nuanced about this rivalry that my, that my son showed me that I, all the years watching it, I never noticed. And that's USC-UCLA. Now, again, this doesn't make a lot of sense as a fan's perspective. I'm a UCLA fan, okay? And the reason why is because the colors. I've always been drawn to powder blue and gold. Chargers colors, UCLA colors. And also, I'm one of the rare people that believe that if you are a fan of one, when it comes to college, if you are a fan of one particular, like I'm a fan of UCLA basketball, you know, then you, it's almost like, it's almost, it's not like you're supposed to, but it just feels right that you become a fan of that team, of the football team and the baseball team and stuff like that too. So I just basically, and then the colors are really cool anyway. But the U, but my grandfather introduced me to USC UCLA when I was about seven, eight, nine years old because he would watch it, you know, every time he came on TV because he was just a fan of that of the Pac of the Pac twelve was I think Pac ten back then. So. Let's talk about uh, other some other major collegiate 
rivalries. We've got Oklahoma and Texas. Uh, the military yeah. showdown between Army and Navy, uh, which might be one of the most the best and most heated rivalries, would be Michigan-Ohio State. Now, my late uncle was a team booster contributing a lot of money to that school. And he once had Woody Hayes over dinner. I remember him telling me that story. And Archie Griffin joined him. So that was kind of cool. I remember him telling me about his wife, though. She was a huge Michigan fan. And every year at the time of the game, they would make some silly bet over the game. And I know that um, when one of the bets was if the Ohio State lost, um, he would have to go on the local radio and proclaim how big of a, a fan his wife was. So um, in the South, we have the Iron Bowl, Alabama-Auburn. Another good one is, of course, you mentioned Notre Dame and USC. The Fighting Irish currently lead that series, a record of 47-36-5. Yeah, going back to the USC-UCLA, um, that they're kind of giving a bow on that one, one thing that my son noticed about that that I never knew until he pointed it out, see, he's a, you know, he was – in high school at the time, and he was a high school football player at the time, and he looked at the screen and he asked me, "Why are they wearing both of them? Why are both of the teams wearing home uniforms?" <laughs> like, what do you mean? He said, "Look, UCLA is wearing blue and gold. USC is wearing red and gold. Why are they wearing oh. both home uniforms?" So I'm like, "I I never noticed that." And so I go back and look at pictures and stuff. And sure enough, every year they wear their home uniform that I had never noticed. Mm-hmm. Wow. I had never noticed. And the reason why that is is because both of them playing in their home city, you know, which is interesting because you don't see that in college football where both teams, both major colleges are in the same city, you know, playing each other, you know, and they used to share the Coliseum, you know, but that was like another cool aspect about it. They chaired the, the Coliseum until 1982 when UCLA, UCLA now plays in the Rose Bowl. You mentioned Auburn, Alabama. If you're from the South, like I am, that's like must-see TV. Even if you don't even have a rooting interest, you watch it because it's almost, because it's almost like a cultural thing. It's like mm-hmm. a Southern cultural thing. You know, um, watching, you know, I remember... The, the, you know, the, the kick six, you know, because I, I, I'll never forget oh, I was coming home from work that day, and I just tuned it on, I turned it on, I saw the score, and uh, Alabama's, like, a, trying to attempt a long field goal and everything, mm-hmm. and then they kick it, it fell short, the guy catches it and runs it all the way back. Mike Davis runs it back all the, like, 100 and some yards, and I'm like, oh, my God. I had never seen a game in like that. Ever and I've been around the game of football one way or another since I was seven, going all the way back to yeah. when I was a water boy for my uncle's football team at night when he was a high school wow. football coach, and um, I've been around the game it's from that point and I had never seen anything like that before. Yeah, that might be one of the greatest plays in college football history, and uh, uh, of course the the band play with John Elway's team in Stanford. Oh that, well, that yeah. <laughs> One of the funniest plays, the craziest ending ever. Uh, talking about Notre Dame, I just got to throw this one in there because I interviewed Terry Hanratty on my show, and he, of course, starred at Notre Dame. Oh, yeah. And so I asked him about the movie Rudy um, because I wanted to find out what he thought from his perspective about how factual it is. And I asked him if he ever met Rudy Ridinger, and he said he met him yeah. briefly but never really got to know him. But he said, first of all, Dan Devine, where the scene where they turn the jerseys in 
so that Rudy could play in the final game. He said that never happened. He said Dan Devine oh. would have never allowed any of his players to turn a jersey in. And he said if they would have done that, they would have been thrown off the team. And he said the very last scene carried off the field never happened. He said perhaps maybe one of his friends picked him up, carried him off the field. He says, but as a team, they never did that. <laughs> I thought that was funny. He says, well, it's wow. all about Hollywood dramatization. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, you see that a lot in, in, in movies. You know, you really do. You know, because yeah. one of my favorite, because I'm a big yeah, college basketball. This is my time of year, college basketball. The the movie, um, Glory Road. You know, the story of the 1966 Texas Western basketball team. Mm-hmm. The way they portrayed the game and the way the game actually was was completely different. You know, yeah. it was, I mean, Texas Western won. They won convincingly, but the way they made it look was like really over the top, over dramatic. And I told this, I wasn't married yet. The girl I took to her to, to, to watch the movie with me, I wasn't married yet. But I told her, like, it happened, but not like that. You know, everything else leading yeah. up to that did happen. Okay, most of it. I would say like 95% of the stuff that happened in the movie up to the championship game with Kentucky happened. But the game itself, mm-hmm. not so much. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I, this movie is not a true story, but it's a great basketball movie, and I bet you've seen it, Blue Chips. Have you ever seen that yes. one? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, a- excellent movie. One of my favorite basketball movies ever. And it, it, it almost tells you really how it is and some of the recruiting violations that do take place for real. Yes. So it was kind of a factual way. It wasn't a true story. Yeah. So, I mean, there's two movies, there's two basketball movies, I think. We're going to go back to the rivalries in a minute, but there's two basketball movies, I think, is so realistic or how things work, you know, that it's like, it's, it's not over-dramatized, over-dramatized, but it gives you an inside look at what it's really about. Blue Chips is one. The other one is He Got Game, the Spike Lee movie mm. that stars Ray Allen and Denzel Washington. That is probably the most realistic basketball movie ever made, okay, because all of that stuff does happen, you know, mm-hmm. and things like that do happen, you know, and it's yeah. a great story, you know, and Ray Allen was a better actor than I gave him credit for, you know, mm. but, you know, he's a great basketball player, but he's also a pretty good pretty good actor too and uh the story is 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 very interesting but as far as like the recruiting and what goes on and you know the tight you know the pull the the give and take the you know the pull and push of recruiting is something that is that you see all the time and it is that's almost commonplace yeah and penny hardaway did a good job in in blue chips as well i thought he did really well yeah yeah well one of the oldest Collegiate rivalries belongs to the Harvard-Yale matchup, which dates back all the way to 1875. The first game ended in a 4 to nothing final with Harvard, the victor, and the series is close with Yale ahead, 68-60 to 60, uh, with eight ties. So even small colleges like that do have some good rivalries, Dana. Yeah, I mean, you got, you know, Harvard-Yale. I saw this one documentary one time, uh, and I wish I could find it again. And I just looked across it, and the title of it was Harvard Wins 29-29. The story, I think it was a 69 uh, matchup between Harvard and Yale when they went for when they played for a tie. Calvin Hill, the legendary former Cowboys running back, was on the, on the team for, for Yale. Uh, it was a great documentary. Also, who played in that game was um, 
I'm now drawing a blank. He's an actor. Um, oh God, what's his name? He played in he played in a whole bunch of different movies. He's a he's a you know he's a great great well known actor. I just can't think of his name right off. Not Billy Bob Thornton, but it's um oh god he was in he's in the he's in the Fugitive with um Harrison Ford. I can't think of his name right off. Too early in the morning, I guess. Now watch as soon as I get off a podcast with you, I'm yeah. gonna remember his name. <laughs> I've been there, done that. But I see I his think, face. Uh, I see his face. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know what you're doing, what you're, where you're coming from with that, because that happens to me a lot. You know, I'll think of something, and I just, it's right there at the tip of your tongue, and you can't think of it. It is. Um, I think, I think former Bengals punter, Pat, I think his name was Pat McNally, he went to Harvard as well. I think that was his yeah. name. So he yeah, a very good punter. Total Sports Recall is sponsored by Mira Artistry, where you can purchase beautiful fine art photography and abstract art. Contact Mirror Artistry in regards to commissions and availability of the pieces on her site. She would like to create something special for you. For the photography and art lovers in your life, Mirror Artistry has the perfect gifts for you. Visit Mirror Artistry at www.miraartistry.com. That's M E R A A R T I S T R Y.com. Miraartistry.com. But uh, let's move to the NFL. Uh, my team, the Steelers, well, Cleveland's their better rival, as most Steelers fans and most people know. And in more recent years, a rivalry has built between the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Baltimore Ravens. Against the Browns, Pittsburgh leads the all-time series 79-62, to and they have one tie. And as for the Ravens, it's 32-24 to all-time with the Steelers in front. When an NFL rival comes to your mind immediately, Dana? Well, there's a couple that come to mind automatically. One is the one that I was introduced to from my dad is Raiders Chiefs. Uh, my dad, of course, longtime Raiders fan, and he he bleeds black and gold. He's claimed that he's been a Raiders fan. I can't believe it. Been a Raiders fan since the mid '60s. You know, when he was a teenager, <clears throat> and. He loved the black and gold, I mean, the black and silver colors. I mean, his truck is black and silver. He has a bass oh, no. boat. His is black and silver. Um, mm-hmm. And he is, he bleeds black and silver, okay? Mm-hmm. And I know it was disappointing when his son decided to be a Chargers fan. But anyway, that goes <laughs> to, that's another story. Um, oh, no. But, yeah, the Chiefs Raiders and stuff, and, and it's like when the Chiefs and Raiders play – He's especially with the success the Chiefs are having now. He didn't even watch the ice of that. You watching the Super Bowl? He's like, heck no, I'm not watching the Super Bowl because you got two teams I can't stand. You got the 49ers no, no. and the Chiefs. Why in the world would I watch that? You know, <laughs> um, why on earth would I watch that? But yeah, he's a long, long time diehard Raiders fan. His favorite player to this day always is Jim Plunkett. That was his, that's his all-time favorite player, Jim Plunkett and Jack, and Jack Tatum. Wow. Yeah. You know, those are his two favorite players. And um, he, it's just crazy about the Raiders, you know, and God bless him, you know. How, <laughs> how, how old is your father? Well, my father, he just turned, oh, he's about, he's going to be 70, actually going to be 75 in November. And um, he could be 75 in November. And, um, you know, and, and another thing is you're a Steelers fan. Right. He contends that 
that play, and right. you know what play I'm talking about, should not have counted. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he could you don't have to tell day. me. They should not have counted. You know, my dad is yeah. a Raiders fan, you're a Steelers fan, and you know where we're going right. with this. Okay, you know where we're going with this. It's, yeah. You know, you know the the ball hit off of Frenchie Fuqua. He will contend that to mm-hmm. his dying breath that it hit off of him. It did not hit off of Tatum. You know, and there's well, no you know, business that Franco Harris should have caught that. <laughs> The funny thing about it is French Fuqua still goes around giving speeches and, and everybody wants to know what happened on that play. And what he'll do is he'll lead it up to thinking like it'll let people think that he's going to tell them what happened. And then he's like, you know what? I really can't say. And then he ends the speech that way. So we'll, he's going to he's going to take that to his grave, whether it, that ball hit him or not. Um, and, of course, Stewart fans and well, your father and I would have a good conversation, I'm sure. Because that was a very bitter rivalry back in the 70s. Um, and literally, Jack Tatum practically took Lynn Swan's head off on one play. Uh, and I watched it. I'll never forget it. It was a Franco Harris running play. And across the field, Tatum just elbowed him into the head for no reason. Uh, brutal. And so um, Chuck Knoll actually wanted to get Tatum press charges against Tatum for assault because, it, you know. Yeah, I, heard so it. Yeah, I remember blatant. reading that, right? Mm hmm. So it, that was a you know, hell of a rivalry. Um, you know, my dad, I mean, there's, there's three teams in the NFL that my dad despises to no end. The Chiefs, <laughs> the 49ers, and the Steelers, you know. Yeah. And he's like, he was like, I was cool with the Steelers until that playoff game in 72. I was cool. Oh, no. I had no problems with them at all. I had no problems with them. But then that happened. And we have this Southern saying, when that happened, they tore their drawers with me. (laughs) They tore their drawers with me. You know, that's it. It's over. You know? And to this day, he still contends. You know, Frenchie Fuqua hit that ball. It's Jack Tatum. Yeah, yeah, Jack Tatum lit him up, which should have happened. But the ball hit off of him. Not off. It didn't hit off of Tatum. It hit off of him. When I nailed him. Well, in case your father listens to this podcast, tell him or he can hear it for himself that I've always contended that it had not been the Steelers winning Super Bowls in the 70s. It would have been the Raiders because they were an amazing team. And I give them all the credit in the world because they had a great team, lots of great players. And it's just unfortunate the Steelers got in their way. Um, but then there was a couple of times where Steelers got – I mean, the Raiders got past us and they ended up in the Super Bowl and winning the yeah. So. Um, I think it was uh, 76 season or something like that. I think I want to say mm-hmm. 76 season. But Franco Harris and Rocky Byer were both injured for the championship game. Right. The Steelers essentially had no running game. Uh, had they had those two who know what would happened, maybe the Steelers would have won three in a row. But the Raiders, of course, beat them, beat them badly and went on to win the Super Bowl. Um, some other right. notable rivalries these days now are Jacksonville and Tennessee. Cowboys and the Giants, yeah, yeah. Cowboys and Eagles. These are all go back a long ways too. And the Bears and the Packers one of the longest running rivalries in history. So yeah, it's it's not just about the teams we're talking about. There's some other really good rivalries still existing and that have re you know been born of recent years in the NFL. Right now, there's one rivalry that I'm actually really seriously considering going into like an in depth of. Uh, 
research about possibly even writing a book because I've witnessed this rivalry from both directions, and that is the Saints-Falcons rivalry. Okay, and I want to do it from the perspective of the fans because I have a lot of friends here that are that are Falcon fans, and then I have a lot of friends back home, including family members, that are diehard Saints fans. You know, they get together twice a year. There's actually a charter bus that go from the visiting team to the to the game every year. It's just a what eight hour drive, six seven eight hour drive depends on your your, your how fast mm-hmm. you travel uh, between the two. And the fan bases are very heated towards each other because I think there's a line of jealousy. You know, it's almost like that type of jealousy that you start, that you would see between. New York and Boston. It's sort of like that here in Atlanta, here in the South between Atlanta and New Orleans. I grew up in South Louisiana, the absolute hotbed of who that nation. It is fertile ground for who that nation. Okay. Then I moved here in 2012 to Atlanta, to, uh, to suburb of, of Atlanta. And it's nothing but Saints fans. I mean, nothing but Falcons fans, excuse me. And I have this, I have a couple of friends that say, love going to New Orleans. I love eating there. They got great food. I just can't stand that team with that thing on the side of the helmet that, 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 that I don't even know how to pronounce <laughs> that, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, you know, with the fleur de lis on the side, he say that one of my friends said that she, he had just moved into a new, brand new house and his wife wanted to buy some furniture to decorate the house. And one of the things that she bought to put on the wall was this very stylized fleur-de-lis. He looked at that and looked at her and said, you will not put that in my house. I know there's not <laughs> I don't care. You are not putting that in my house. You know? Wow. So, you know, it, 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 that's, that's how deep it runs. That's how deep it mm-hmm. runs. I mean, and the same thing from the other direction. I had a friend of mine when I lived in Louisiana who was coaching a youth flag football team. I was coaching it with him. And the team name, and they just assigned us names. They just assigned us team names. And the guy and the team name that came up for us was the Falcons. He said, "Uh uh-uh, no, I am not coaching the team named the Falcons. I refuse. You know, if if this team's going to be named the Falcons, I quit. You know, that's how deep it is. (laughs) So we ended up changing our name, changing the name. So it 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 was just, it's like that. Um, uh-huh. It's the most if, of all the NFL rivalries: Cowboys, Redskins, Steelers, Raiders, Browns, Bengals, whatever. It is the most collegiate. It has the most collegiate feel to it. Whereas mm-hmm. it's it riles up. It, it's first of all, it is the most southern of rivalries because it's because it comes from a place of of of. Of, it's like, it's, 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 I don't want to. I don't want to say hatred because it's definitely there, but it's like it's a, it's a type of hatred that only love would understand. You see, and that's the way that rivalry is with the rate with between the Falcons and Saints. It has a collegiate feel to it. Only thing is missing is a marching band. If they had a marching band, then it would truly feel like two colleges because the passions are there. The you know you listen to sports talk radio. Here in Atlanta, you hear them say, they give like disparaging nicknames to the Saints. They don't call them the Saints. They call them the boys from the bayou, you know, or, or something like that, you know. And then, you know, because I think that there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of jealousy there. 
you know, between the two cities, you know, and one of them is jealous of the other. Atlanta is jealous of New Orleans because of the food, the culture, the the, the party atmosphere that New Orleans typically brings out, you know, that you really think of whenever you hear New Orleans. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. jealous, um, New Orleans is jealous of Atlanta because of its money and its influence nationally. So really, that's really, uh, you know, just, just over-the-top flamboyant. When you think of the Falcons, you think of MC Hammond, the two legit to quit Falcons of 91, you know, that was had MC Hammer on the sidelines. And you had Deion Sanders and Andre Risen. The Saints, you think of high-powered offense, you know, and they're flamboyant in their own way, you know. So that thing, that's what makes that rivalry so special. Yeah, we already touched and I think on the, that. And I think the fans are the ones, and I think the fans are the ones that make it special. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned that fans because <laughs> I saw a headline yesterday and read the story. And I was, this is ridiculous, kind of, but there was a story about the drunkest fans in the NFL, and surprisingly, the Tennessee Titans were the number one drunkest drunkest that's, fans. That is a surprise. Really? That is, the Stewards were number two. That's a surprise. <laughs> Stewart fans were number two, and they're, that's, they're basing that's this definitely on... a surprise. <laughs> wow. Well, they, they based it like on you know, breathalyzer. I, 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 I really, right. you know, somebody, if somebody would have said that and asked me to guess, I'd say, oh, it easily be the same. Easily. I mean, because really? the Superdome is in the walking distance of the French Quarter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you and, and and I think that the reason why it's not because of the game time, because what time the game starts. If this was like yeah. a four o'clock, if they usually start at four o'clock, mm-hmm. you know, then yeah, they would be the drunkest fans, you know. But <laughs> one o'clock in the afternoon, it's too, it's a little bit too early, you know. They still fish. They 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 just ate breakfast, you know. Probably the biggest yeah. breakfast that you could finally find, you oh know. And they hadn't had a chance to really get started to drinking yet, you know. But Tennessee, that's interesting. I I, I never would have guessed that. I guess my friend Neither Jeremy has to explain that. <laughs> yeah, I guess Jeremy exactly. McFarland's gonna have to explain that. <laughs> exactly, because I didn't get it either. I didn't think that, but you know what? Unfortunately, uh, alcohol and fans don't mix because, especially when you get no. these rivals, and you can go on YouTube and watch some of the most disgusting, ugliest fights, and a, a lot oh, of them man. are with Steeler fans. And you know, it's a, it puts a bad image on the Steeler fans when they do that, and it just makes me sick to see these idiots. Fighting, you know, it's all over a football game. I mean, it's just really silly. It's crazy. One thing that that, that I kind of thought about Steeler fans was is that Steeler fans are one probably the most knowledgeable football fans. You know, they kind of like they they kind of reminded me of Nebraska football fans because Nebraska has this reputation of being very very knowledgeable, but also very very respectful of the teams that's coming in to play them. You know, especially with the fans. I had a buddy of mine who is a – he was a Florida Gators fan, okay? And he went to the Fiesta Bowl that was when they got blasted by by Nebraska. I think it was in 96, the 96 Fiesta Bowl, where they just got destroyed by Tommy Frazier in, in um, Nebraska. But he ran into some Nebraska fans before the game, and they were some of the nicest people that you could possibly meet, especially if you were like – you know, gear. And I thought the Steelers fans were like that, you know, because mm-hmm. one thing I know of the, is that Steelers fans have this reputation at least once upon a time of being ones that are very, 
very knowledgeable of football, but also very, very respectful of other teams. You know, they had that reputation for a while. At least that's what that, that's what I had heard, and that's what I kind of understood. Well, the majority of them are like that, and, and one of the things you'll see too is that you always hear it when you turn on the Steelers game when they're on the road. Oh, the Steelers fans travel well. Well, a lot of them do. But the thing, real true fact is that a lot of Pittsburghers like myself have moved out of the city somewhere else and we're in NFL cities. So when you turn on a game and you see it on the road, um, you're going to see all these thousands of Steelers fans. It's not always because they're flying out there or driving out there. It's because they live there. And as a matter of fact, down here in Jacksonville years ago, I've been to four Steelers games here. Um, I got on the the radio with with, uh, Tom Dempsey, who used to – uh, play for the Jaguars and his mm-hmm. uh, his co-host they were talking about the upcoming Sunday night Steelers game and I got on the air and I said what do you guys think how many fans are going to be there and one of the guys um, he goes oh about 5,000 fans I'm like are you crazy I said you're gonna be a lot more than that I said I'll guarantee you to be a lot more fans than that so come Sunday night Dana I went to the stadium opening kickoff I look around and all I saw was terrible towels. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is uh-huh. crazy. So I called them up Monday morning. What do you guys think? How many fans do you think were in that stadium? Oh, 15,000. I'm like, are you nuts? I said, half that stadium at least filled with Stewart. It was at least 35,000 fans there. It was crazy. But, uh, yeah. but uh, I think one thing about Stewart fans. Great. Yeah, I was going to say, one thing about Stewart fans is that um, it's, it's interesting. If you're a Stewart's fan, you go to a, an away game, and you see another Steelers fan, they treat you like they know you. Um, right. It is a big family. Yeah. Yeah. And that exists. You know, and that I think exists a lot sure. of, and I think a lot of that also, which you see all these Steelers fans across the country and stuff like that, is the, the, the amount of success that they have had over the years. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy to be a Steelers fan because you had all of this, Every time you turn around, they've never had a winning season under Tomlin. They've only had three coaches since 1959. They have Hall of Famers at the Yi Yang, you know. And when I was a kid, there was, like, of course, me being the oddball, being a Chargers fan, you were either, in Louisiana, you were either a Saints fan, which was obvious. You were either a Cowboys fan. They were popular but I could not bring myself to be a Cowboys fan, no matter how hard I tried. I, I just could not do it, you know, because yeah, I'm not obnoxious. You know, I'm not obnoxious. You could an Oilers fan because the Oilers were still around in Houston, and they were like right there, just west. Um, a Raiders fan, for whatever reason, and you have the Steelers. Okay, and because the Steelers, late seventies, early eighties, the Steelers were popular. Because they had won four Super Bowls, they had Terry Bradshaw, they had Franco Harris, which incidentally is my wife's all-time favorite player. Oh, no kidding. You know, she, that's, that's her all-time favorite player and stuff. And she says that if I grow my beard out and everything like that, I kind of look like him. I wish. But anyway, <laughs> the late, great Franco. Yeah. yeah. You know, but – but, yeah, I mean, I think is that it, it deals a lot with the popularity of the team, of why you see Steeler fans everywhere, you know. And hopefully with us, the Chargers, hiring Jim Harbaugh, maybe we can cut into some of that popularity. Because we got everything. We just got to put it all together now. 
Well, before we close up the show, Dana, um, there's some newer rivalries brewing in the NFL, such as the Jaguars here in Jacksonville and the Texans and the Bills versus the Patriots. Any last rivalries you'd like to mention, Dana? Well, I mean, you talk about when I when I was a, when I was younger, growing up. You know, you had the rivalry um, with the entire NFC East. You know, mm-hmm. that's one. Everybody in the NFC East, Cowboys, now the Commanders, Giants and Eagles, they all hate each other. You know, mm-hmm. it, I mean, one of my friends who is a diehard Cowboys fan says that he hate. I mean, he says the one game that scares me more than anything else is when we play Washington. Now, Washington, of course, mm-hmm. is on the downside, and they're trying to get back to where they used to be. But he says mm-hmm. – I have nightmares about the commanders because they have ruined our seasons so often, you know, and it's almost like whenever you have a rivalry discussion, it's almost like you cannot about the NFL. You cannot leave out Dallas, Washington, you know, you can't leave that out. But if you, if you talk about Dallas, Washington, you have to talk about Dallas, Philly or Philly giants or giants commander. I mean, you get, it's, it's a whole cup. It's a whole, it's a whole division that hate each other. And I've always thought that that was like one of the key things about great rivalries in the NFL. It's like you, you know, I wrote down like you know the the best rivalries, my favorite rivalries of the NFL, and I put down the entire NFC East as one of yeah. them. Now I remember when I was in the Coast Guard um, and the Redskins, now the Commanders, of course, as you said. We're playing the Giants, and who can ever forget Lawrence Taylor and Joe Theismann, that incident, breaking Theismann. Oh, life. my God, yeah. Uh, we were on a ship, and somebody sent us the tape of the game, and we put it on super slow motion. It was one of the ugliest, nastiest injuries I've ever seen. It was, oh, my God, and unbelievable. I remember that happened. I was in junior high, might have been high school, but I know I was still living with my parents. It was the mid-'80s. And I want to say I was maybe in somewhere around in there, 14, 15 years old. I remember we had practice the next day. Okay, we had football practice the next day. Nobody wanted to tackle anybody because we all saw it. <laughs> we all saw it the night before. Yeah. And nobody mm-hmm. wanted to tackle anybody because yeah. we were, like, afraid. Because we kept thinking about we saw what happened with Joe Theismann and stuff like that. It kind of reminded me. I mean, when you talk about Theismann's injury, you know, the injury – earlier this year in college football with the quarterback for Florida state and hit the way that his knee, his leg looked after he was tackled. And it just seemed like just a regular, benign everyday tackle. But if you're super slow-mo and you concentrate on Thais's leg and you're like, OMG, what was that? You know, and they showed, they showed it and we were like the next day, that's all anybody talked about. Nobody, nobody remembers who won the game. But we all mm-hmm. talked about, oh, my God, did you see what happened? Did you see his leg snap? You know? And it's like, it wasn't even a movie. It was like real life. And that's what really freaked out everybody, that it was real life. Yeah. And, and one more injury probably was worse than that was Alex Smith's broken leg. And I saw a commercial oh, yeah. of him recently, and he had shorts yeah. on, and his leg looks like spaghetti. Oh, my God, it's terrible. Yeah. And yeah. they say he almost cost him his life. So it's crazy that it happened to him. Uh, 
Before we close this up, Dana, I see in the, in the background, is that a New Zealand or Australia flag? Australia. Okay, and why is that up on your wall? Well, if you look behind me also, there's the British Union Jack, too. Okay. And okay. Um, I've been to both places. That's why. Ah, interesting. Oh, my gosh. I hear Australia is beautiful. I've never been there, but I've heard it. It's just gorgeous. Been to Brisbane. Wow. Very nice. Well, it's been a pleasure having Dana Augustor as a guest, and we've talked about football rivalries. I'm sure we could talk much more. But I'd like to give you, Dana, the chance now to provide any final thoughts on this topic and also have the opportunity to plug your podcast and any other projects or items you'd like to speak to. Well, my, my podcast, Historically Speaking Sports, is basically it's all in the title. What we do is every – Whenever we come up with a, with a, a uh, episode, which I'm working on an episode now, um, we talk about headlines in sports currently, but we put a historical twist on them. For example, one of the main topics that we're going to talk about is the sensation, women's basketball sensation, Caitlin Clark. She is only 99 points away from breaking college basketball's all-time scoring record, which is held by Pete Maravich which was set in 1970, okay? And I'm going to compare and contrast her career with his and give people a reminder of how good Pete Maravich was. This one is his case in point. He set the career record for only playing just three years at LSU because freshmen were ineligible. Mm -hmm. Dale Brown, the longtime coach at LSU who became coach after Pete Maravich had left, went back. And cataloged all of the with the running score and the scoring books and everything, went back and had he included what would have been three pointers in his scoring total, instead of him averaging the forty four point three points per game, which is incredible for anybody for having a scoring average of forty four points per game, he would have averaged fifty four points a game had the three point line been instituted. Wow. Wow. And I'll tell you, it's and, a, and did that story. all that in three years. Did all that in three yeah. years. Interesting story, story that you bring up, Pete Maravich, because not only do I remember watching him play, he was a magician with the basketball. He was just so much fun to watch. But here's another interesting tidbit for you, is that my former guest that I had mentioned, B.B. Flannery, when he tried out with the Celtics, as I mentioned before, his roommate was Pete Maravich. Maravich was also oh. on the Celtics team. So yeah, he's he got, sure he, was. Yeah, so he got to know Pete Maravich. And as soon as he mentioned his name in our interview, he was like, oh, my God, you room with Pete Maravich? That's crazy. I said, what an experience that must have been. So, And I remember when he passed. I remember when he passed in 88. Yeah. I mm-hmm. didn't really know much about him because I was mm-hmm. only, what, 15 years old? And I did some research, and I saw some game film of him, and I'm like, this dude's incredible, you know? Yeah. So it, he's sort of like a cult figure in the world of basketball. Yeah. And true, to, it's true that he is just a musician with the basketball. He did some crazy things with his passing, and he was just a, a great shooter, great player. Well, listen, for Dana Auguster, this is Harv Aronson, hoping everyone listening will check out the Sports History Network where you can find Dana's show and the articles on that site, as well as listening to one of the many shows available there. You can access the site at www.sportshistorynetwork.com. Also, visit my Total Sports Recall website at totalsportsrecall.com and feel free to email me with any comments, 
or suggestions, any comments you have about today's show at totalsportsrecall at gmail.com. For Dana Auguster and his podcast, Historically Speaking Sports, this is Harv Aronson wishing everyone a wonderful week ahead. The contents of this podcast do not represent the opinions of others and are solely the opinions of Harv Aronson based on his experience, knowledge, and research. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.